Open your Bibles, please, to James chapter 4. It's good to be back with you after being in Ohio to visit family last week. We had an opportunity to go to uh, the church uh, in the evening of uh, Alistair Begg. I don't know if you've heard him on the radio, but he's a good man, good preacher of the word, and uh, had a good time of fellowship there, and uh, and uh, had good fellowship with our family, And but it's good to be home. I'm not sure, but I think that the people who design airplane interiors... <laughs> are frustrated social workers <laughs> because they seem to be intent on getting people as close together as they possibly can. <laughs> I can remember the days. I'm so old. I can remember when you could get on an airplane commonly commonly get on an airplane and a third of the seats will be empty. And so if the seat right next to you wasn't empty, you, once you took off and the seatbelt sign was off, you'd get up and move and you could have a place where you know at least one empty seat next to you, maybe a couple. People used to lay down and sleep on the airplane. Oh man, I can remember when there was at least an inch of legroom in front of my knees. Oh those were the days, weren't they? <laughs> Even though the doctor tells me my height has shrunk in recent years, I feel like I'm going into a child's playhouse in some airplanes. You know, once you, once you get off the cross-country flight and you get onto the commuter flight, you, you go in like this and you sit down like this and you sit like that and say, Oh God, please make this get over soon. Oh, man. As much as we all might whine about certain physical unpleasantries in life, the greater discomforts we face have to do with interpersonal conflict. We can endure a lot of physical suffering if, if we're getting, getting along with the people in our lives. We don't like to think about, talk about, or experience conflict. Yet we must, because we are fallen human beings. One famous Bible teacher on the family said, what is the definition of the family? Or a, what is the definition of a Christian home? And you know how he defines it? It's a place where sinners live. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's true. And, and if we ask the question, what, are, what is a a Christian church. It is a place where sinners live. And because of that, we have conflicts. We're spending some time on the topic of communication, conflict, and reconciliation. And, and we're turning our attention now from the area of communication to the area of conflict. And we'll see how the com communication part comes back together as we move through this. But Today we want to understand what are the sources of the conflicts that we come into in life. And we're going to start in James chapter 4 and, and, and with perhaps uh, the most significant source of conflict that we have. Where do wars 
and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss or with a wrong motive so that you may spend it on your pleasures." The first thing we want to understand about where conflict comes from is this. Conflict comes from the desire for pleasure. Now, when you read this passage, if if you haven't spent any time here much and really studied it, you might think, oh, that's talking about really wicked people. People who murder and and covet and do terrible things like that. Or people who, who live in all kinds of wicked pleasures. The word for pleasure here simply means anything that is enjoyable. The word for pleasure here is not a word that is inherently wicked or talking about things that are inherently wicked. It just says, as human beings, we like things that are pleasurable, enjoyable, desirable. Things like food, fun, right? These are pleasures. You know, recreation, I dare say tomorrow, if not today, you know, uh, uh, No place in the world should we be wearing a shirt like here that says carpe diem. should say carpe diem, the sunshine. If the sun is shining, you should go out and do your outside stuff today because you do not know what a day will bring, as the scripture says. But I dare say tomorrow, some of you, like us, will go to the Blaine Parade. Oh, and it will be exciting. It will be fun. It will be either fun because you think it's cool or fun because you think it's cool to make fun. One of the two. And you'll, are you guys going to be there with your usual? Oh, it'll be fun then. Oh, yes. The Heaths will, the Heaths, the Heaths will be there peddling their wares. And Corky, you'll be there peddling her wares. So we will have fun one way or the other. Yes, we will. Um, you know, hobbies are fun. Television, some of it is fun and good. Just, just having ease is fun. Feelings. We want to feel good. We want to enjoy whatever we are doing. The only word I could get that had to do with sleep was the word fuel. When you go to sleep, you get energized again. And, and the whole category of relaxation. You know, I don't want to exert myself too much. I want to relax a little bit. I want to sleep an appropriate amount of time and so on. And then flow, the schedule, the way things go. Is it too busy? Is it not too busy? Am I bored? Am I going crazy? You know, what is it? Busyness or comfort with the activity level. And then the last one, uh, fellowship. Having enjoyable times with friends and or family. None of these things are sinful. These are normal parts of human life. In fact, they're blessings from God, every one of them. Isn't it wonderful that God made food, which is is to feed our body, isn't it wonderful that he made it taste good? Yeah! That's a wonderful blessing. And so on right through these things. None of these things are sinful in and of themselves, but each of us has our own idea of what part they should play in our lives. 
And at times we come into conflict with other people and their desires. This week I went to Costco. First time I hadn't been to Costco for a week. I was like on like a Costco fast, you know, while I was in Ohio. There's like one Costco in Ohio somewhere. We're not sure where it is. It's terrible. So I'm walking into Costco and there's a Bellingham police officer standing there. And I've been around police enough to know when they're doing something like, you know, somebody shoplifted or somebody did a crime or got hurt. I can tell when they're doing something or when they're just kind of standing around, you know, on, on guard duty, if you will, or whatever. And this guy was just standing there. And so, you know, I, I went up and I said, uh, did they elevate the terrorist threat level at Costco? And he said, uh, no, they've had some problems in the parking lot. And some problems in the gas line. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, there'll be an open parking spot. And so somebody comes and stands in the parking spot to save it while their loved one drives around and gets into it. And somebody else comes and they don't like that. What's that conflict over? It's over, what is it over? Fun. I don't want to walk any farther than I have to to go into Costco. And if you're getting in my way, mister, you and me are going to have a problem. I saw a person in Tukwila at Costco hit another person with their car because a pedestrian because that guy took their parking spot. Yeah. Just kind of nudged him, just enough to say, hey, I could kill you if I wanted to, you know. <laughs> our desires for pleasure are a major source of our conflict. So we disagree about what to have for dinner. We disagree about where to go on vacation. We get mad at the stupid airline because of the lack of leg room on the airplane. We disagree about how many cookies to take in the welcome room. And it looks like a bonus day for cookies, by the way. No, Johnny, you can't take 14. Why? We disagree about whether a nap or a project should fill the afternoon. We disagree about the quantity of physical intimacy between a husband and wife. We disagree about who should wash the dishes and whose turn it is to sit in the front seat. When I'm traveling by myself and I decide in the morning after much deliberation to have breakfast at McDonald's, there's no debate. I just get in the car and drive right over. But when my wonderful wife is with me, she has different desires. And neither desire is wrong. But neither desire is objectively right either. It is the conflict of our desires for pleasure that is the major source of, ple of conflict in our life. The first source of conflict is the things that we desire. The second source of conflict that we have is what I would call the things that we think we deserve. I've called it the desire for significance. If I was to put it real plainly, I would just say it's our pride that is the source of this. Do you remember this conflict among the disciples? Now there was a dispute among them as to which one of them should be considered the greatest. I, I, you know, the more I think about this, I, I'm, I'm, I'm both baffled and I also understand 
Because in humanity, that's the way things are. But I just can't imagine walking down the road. Here's Jesus. You know, he's been healing people and raising the dead. And I'm having a discussion with my fellows about which one of us is the greatest. What would that discussion have sounded like? You know, here's Peter. Peter would say, well, you know, I walked on the water, and I am the one who said he was the Christ, and he said he was going to build the church on my confession of faith, on my confession of him as, as, the, as the Christ. And then Judas would chime in, if it wasn't for me, this whole enterprise would be bankrupt by now. And then Andrew would chime in and say, well, Peter, who was it that told you about Jesus? Oh, that's right, it was me that told you about Jesus and brought you to see him. The word dispute in this verse literally means the love of strife. One translation used the word rivalry to define it. There was a rivalry among the apostles. Now, when you think about the apostles piously following Jesus around for three years with their hands folded, doing the works of God. Does the word rivalry come into your mental picture? No. We, because we, we see them piously walking around with their hands folded. And the truth is they were going, hey, you going to eat that? Hey, man, I'm hungry. Can I have that? Hey, Hey, you know, I, I want to sit there by you. You got to sit by Jesus last time. Can you imagine that? They were human. And they weren't even filled with the Spirit yet because Christ hadn't died and made our sins forgiven possible. And so they weren't truly born again. They were Old Testament saints at best. And so there was a rivalry going on. We moved uh, in the middle of my fifth grade year uh, to eastern Washington. And there was a kid in my class who didn't like me from the first time he laid eyes on me. I know you find that hard to believe. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think I ever did anything to this kid. Uh, years later, uh, when I was, I believe it was when I was 17, I got a job at a restaurant the year before I went to college, and he worked at that same restaurant. And all of the years in between... And, and when we worked at the restaurant, he consistently picked at me whenever he got a chance until we were living in two different states. Probably if he could find me on Facebook, he'd do it again. And I have no, I have no understanding why. Somehow, I, I, I have to believe that somehow from his perspective there was a rivalry. I don't know what he was jealous of me about because I wasn't nothing in fifth grade. Somehow I upset his world. I don't know how, but he did not take to me. I knew a group of pastors once, and I was not one of them. A group of men who were in the age that I followed, if you will, who went to ministry school together, and they had a rivalry. And I learned about this from another one of their associates once, and he said, oh, yeah, you know about the rivalry between these guys. I said, no. He said, oh yeah, they're always trying to prove that they're better than one another. You know, size of their church, whatever accomplishments they've done, whatever it is. Human standards. The Apostle John 
wrote about a man who desired significance. And he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, he does not receive us. Can you imagine being so arrogant that you, didn't, you would not allow the Apostle John to come to your church? Can you imagine, when you think about the apostolic age, do you think about people like that? I'm not, you can't come here. And the only reason is because Diotrephes wanted to be the most significant person in that group. The monster called pride is both natural and supernatural in its origin. The natural part is spoken of here. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, evil eye, blasphemy, pride. Why do we crave recognition? Why do we crave, crave status? Why do we crave uh, the significance by whatever our definition of it is? It's because we have it in our hearts. And the only way it gets expunged is as Christ gets put in day by day, day by day, year by year, and he can push the pride out of our heart. Of course, pride began outside the human race. And this is talking about Satan. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. The word Lucifer means something akin to a multicolored person or a multicolored. In other words, literally, if I said, if I called you rainbow, you know, you're multicolored. And so somehow it has to do with, with an identity that he had that he was an incredibly beautiful creature. And it's entirely likely that the reason he has power over the earth now is because he had power over the earth when he was created by God. He was given a realm of responsibility. He didn't take power. God allowed him to have it. And so he, he was a perhaps an extremely beautiful angel, perhaps one of the highest ranking angels. And he got to look at himself in the mirror. Hmm, boy, look at me. And he looked over at the chair of God, and he said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. That's a way to talk about the very presence of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Can you imagine? I, I can't really imagine what it's like to be in the very presence of God. But Lucifer had that privilege. And can you imagine, you, you, can, you, can, you can know God and see God, and then you see the angels. And you look around and you think, yeah, I'm going to be God. Really? You, you don't understand the difference between you and God? I don't know what that is. 
And so pride comes from Lucifer, comes from the devil. And as we've already been talking about during Sunday school, but we need to repeat it again, who is the prince of the power of the air of this world? Satan. So what's he going to infuse the world with? Pride. He doesn't want you to submit to God, so he wants you to grow up in a world that causes you to think prideful thoughts. Do you know why there are gang shootings? It's because one person feels disrespected by somebody else from another gang or somebody from the public. Years ago, there used to be gang fights over such things. Now there are shootings. You disrespect a person, boom, he's got he's to protect his significance at all means. By all means. The world infuses us with thoughts like, I need to love myself. That is not from God, no way, no how. I know it sounds good, and I know people want to defend it. It's not. The call to Christianity is a call to self-crucifixion. I put myself down, and I embrace the only Savior who can save me. I put myself down and let Him live through me whatever He wants to do. The world infuses, infuses us with thoughts like, I deserve better treatment. And it comes into Christianity this way. Well, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy, would he? I don't know whether God wants you to be unhappy or not, but I do know what God wants for you. And it's righteousness. And sometimes righteousness comes through unhappiness comes through circumstances that are not fun. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, or you can see them. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Do you understand? The children of God love one another. The children of the devil do not love one another. And so, if you are wrapped up in self-love, you are operating as a child of the devil. Now, you could be born again and still play on his team by mistake, by rebellion. But if you are operating in self-love, you are not operating in godliness. In fact, in 1 Timothy, it gets even more stronger. Uh, talking about selecting a pastor, he says, don't select a new Christian, a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. When you live in pride, you are living like the devil. And the condemnation that he's talking about is the condemnation that comes from God when he says, God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. And the word for oppose there in 1 Peter 5 means to go to war with. I tell you what, if this is the line and there's God's side and the other side, I want to be on this side. Now that's not easy, when it comes to interpersonal conflict, but sometimes we have to be honest enough to say, you know what, I've been living in pride, and that is the reason that I am in conflict. Conflict 
comes from our desires for pleasure. It comes from the desire for significance. And thirdly, it can come from opinions. Opinions. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And verse 36. This is during the missionary journeying of Paul. And we come to a point, a story that many of you will be familiar with, starting in verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, these two were traveling together, and there would have been others with them. In particular, we see John Mark, but uh, not just those two, but a group of people. Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. They'd been on a, on a tour, proclaiming the gospel, starting churches, and he says, now, let's take that same circuit again and go see how everybody's doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, who was also called Mark, or John Mark, as we would say. But Paul insisted that they should not take, they should not take him with them now they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention. That's probably the best word for conflict in the New Testament. You can look that word up, but it, it means basically to have a conflict. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, I want you to be careful in listening to what I'm going to say, because I hope to be clear, I hope to be biblical, first of all, and I hope to be clear about it. What we don't see here in this passage is condemnation by God for either one of these men, Paul or Barnabas. It leads me to believe that there are times when believers have differences of opinions that cannot be resolved biblically, because if Paul could have brought the word to bear on this, he would have. And there may be room for a legitimate difference. Paul looked at Mark and said, you know what? Mark bailed on us. That's what it says there. He departed from them, uh, the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia. Something got too hard for, for John Mark when they were in this particular city. Maybe he got homesick. Maybe he got real sick. Maybe he, you know, wanted to go make some money and have some real food. I, I don't know what his problem was. But he bailed. And the Apostle Paul saw it as a, as a person, I, 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 if I put the best spin on it I, I can, I would say something like this. John Mark was swimming with the big boys. And, you know, Paul, he'd wade into anything. And it, it would appear they got to a point that for some reason, Mark went, oh, that's too much. And he, and he fell back. Okay? That's not a wicked thing. There may be times when you have to fall back because you say, you know what, I got in over my head. But the Apostle Paul seems to have viewed it as a failure of courage, 
failure of commitment, failure in some way. Barnabas didn't see it that way. Okay. Now, if you hang on till we get through this a little bit farther, you're going to see that I think Paul changed his tune maybe later on. Certainly we know that he changed his tune about John Mark, because by the end of 2 Timothy, he says, bring John Mark to me, for he's profitable for the ministry. So there was, there was an ongoing reconciliation there as well. And I'm not trying to justify Paul or Barnabas. I'm just saying it appears that there was an opinion situation, not a thus saith the Lord. And because of the opinion, there was a division. But I'm guessing that in time, the Apostle Paul came to think this way. And I think a few, if, if he had a few more years under his belt, he might have acted differently toward Mark. Here's what Paul wrote to the Philippians. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. How would you like to be two ladies who became famous in the Bible for not getting along? These were two ladies in the church at Philippi. And Paul had heard about it. These two ladies are having a conflict. And his instruction was not to separate. His instruction was actually to the pastor. He says, you help them get along. Okay. I have a sense that if that, that by this time in Paul's life, if he'd have experienced this difficulty with Mark and with Barnabas, he would have said, now let's, let's sit down and really figure this out and come to a better conclusion. But there are times when there are opinions that can result in conflict. What complicates our opinions is our desire for significance. And so sometimes we get filled with pride about an opinion and the result is an extended conflict. Listen to what happened in Corinth. It's been declared to me or reported, the Apostle Paul wasn't right there when it happened, but he says, I've heard the news by those of Chloe's household that there are contentions or conflicts among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Do you understand what was going on here? In fact, let me go one more verse. For you are still carnal. He says if you're in that condition of having these divided groups in the church, you are carnal. And that what the word carnal means is you're living like an unsaved person. For where there is envy and strife and division among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, another says, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Let me help you visualize what was going on. Here's how the people in the church would have been talking. Oh, I just love the Apostle Paul. You know, he's an apostle. He actually writes the very word of God, you know. He's the one that I follow. And their friend that they're talking to would say, oh yeah, I know. But Peter's an apostle too, and he's such a strong man. Cephas, Peter. He's such a strong man. I love the way that he speaks so forcefully. It just sounds like God is speaking himself. And somebody else would say, well, Paul was a good man, and Peter too, but Apollos. Now Apollos is the man that's going to reach this generation. Have you noticed how up-to-date his clothing styles are? Peter and, Paul, Peter and Paul are so yesterday. And then, somebody, and then somebody chimes in and says, 
I follow Jesus. Translate that, I don't listen to any other human being. That's what was going on in the church of Corinth. These people were divided up according to who they thought the best preacher, pastor, leader guy was. Now, understand this. All of those guys were preaching the same truth. There's no hint that any of them were heretics. There's no hint that any of them were compromising. These people weren't attached to them because they had a different doctrine. They just had some human attachment to them. And so, Paul writes this to Timothy. He said, the people who argue about words, they know nothing, but they're obsessed with disputes and arguments from which come envy and strife and reviling. He, he said, when you listen to a, a person, you think, oh, I like the way he says it. No, oh, I like the way he says it. And then you're arguing about words and minutia and how things are said. He said, that is no good. It's evil. They all preached the same truth, and these people were just divided up among which one they thought did the best job. Meanwhile, what happened was their attachment to opinion created a hostile worship environment. You know, later in the book, it says things like this. When they would come to have a potluck supper, some people were sitting over here eating their own food, and there was people standing over here eating nothing because these people wouldn't share with those people. That's the kind of church it was, but it started with this divided attachment to leaders. We are not going to agree about the application of every scripture to life. We will not agree over every decision about wall color or flower placement. We are going to have opinions about the best way to get an education or a job or a life partner. Some people will do things one way, some people another. But if we're not careful, we will allow our opinions to breed conflict. Now, in contrast to the debatable opinion issue, we do know that there can be conflict over error. Turn a few pages after Galatians, excuse me, after the book of Acts, turn down to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Galatians 2. Then after, starting in verse 1, then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I also took Titus with me, and I went up by revelation. And I communicated to them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of the reputation, lest by any means I, have, I might run or had run in vain. Verse 3, yet not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we did not yield submission for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Now drop down to verse 11. Now when Peter had come from Antioch, I withstood him to his face. That's a good definition of a conflict. I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed 
For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who are of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as the Jews? And he goes on from there. Here, there are two errors that were going on. There are two doctrinal errors that were going on in the Galatian church. Number one, doctrinal heresy, which in this case was adding works to the faith as a part of salvation. He refers to circumcision. That's a key reference to the Old Testament law. There were people saying you have to follow the law plus believe in Christ in order to be saved. There are still people saying that today. And the Apostle Paul said we didn't give in to them for even a minute. Number two, there was doctrinal compromise. And what I mean by that is the Apostle Peter didn't change his doctrine, but he changed his practice. And so when, when there certain people were around who disagreed with the gospel of God and how everybody comes in and we don't have to follow the law, when those people were around, Peter changed his behavior so that those people wouldn't be upset with him. Doctrinal heresy and doctrinal compromise. Peter, Peter failed to live what he knew was true and to stand against the heretics. And so the Apostle Paul says, I withstood him to his face. There are times when there will be error and we have to come into conflict with people over that error. If you believe that God's word means what it says, you are going to have conflict with the folk who don't like some of it. If you believe that faith in Christ is the only way to heaven, you are going to have a conflict with those who believe everyone's going to get there all in their own way. If you have the audacity to say that there is such a thing as sin and righteousness, you will have conflict with those who want to live in sin. And that comes down to our, our normal day-to-day lives in the, frame, in, the, in, the, in the sense of your friend who's a Christian coming to you and talking about their life and trying to justify their sin. And if you have the audacity to say, look, God's word says that's wrong, you are going to have conflict. If you stand on God's word, you will have conflict. It is unavoidable. You don't have to be disagreeable and mean to come into conflict over God's word. You just have to stand for the truth. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you don't have disagreements over doctrine, you either don't know the truth, or you always keep your mouth shut when such topics come up in conversation. Number five, conflict can come because of mistreatment. Turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, another passage that's fairly well known to many of us. Acts chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1. Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews or the Jews by the Hellenists or the Greeks because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve, the apostles, summoned the multitude, and they they created a a solution to address this problem. Now, what you need to understand here is 
there was mistreatment. There's no debate in this passage about whether or not they were getting left out. They were getting left out. Now, we, we don't know the reason, and God doesn't tell us the reason. We might assume, but it could be wrong, that there was a, uh, a prejudice on the part of the Jews who never liked people from outside, you know, the Old Testament, and even into the time of Christ, they referred to non-Jewish people as dogs. And, and so there could have been a prejudice that was there, but that's, we're not told that. All we're told is that the church it was growing and growing and growing, and they had a social welfare ministry. And that was, you know, people gave, it, Scripture says that some people gave everything they had to the church, and then it was doled back out according to how everybody had a need. I don't know if that means every everything that belonged to everyone, I, but somehow they were given a lot of money in, and then they here's here's a widow, give her give her what she needs, give her what she needs, and that's what they did. And there was mistreatment. Mistreatment is going to happen. Here it happened because the church was growing so fast. That happens when churches grow. Some people get left out one way or another. It happens when businesses grow. It happens when schools or organizations or committees or teams grow and progress and do things. Anywhere that a group of people is working and progressing, even in families, somebody can be mistreated but not on purpose. I got the... uh, This is the... uh, One of the little magazines that you can get on our magazine rack back there. I'm looking for the cover. So you can see what the cover looks like. Oh, where's the cover? There it is. cover looks like that. It's called The Message. This is AVWE's uh, monthly magazine. I think it's monthly. And this, the whole episode this time is about praying. Why pray? And it's about praying for missionaries. And here is an article written, written about missionaries and why, you know, patience is a virtue. That's the title. And in parentheses, I don't always have. Patience is a virtue I don't always have. Why missionaries need your prayer? Recently, we arrived in Russia and had to register our family. The process of registration is a carryover from communism that helps keep tabs on where people live. On the day of registration, Bill left to get in line before the office opened at 9.30. There is a system in place in Russia where people arrive and take note of who's ahead of them. As they keep arriving, they ask who is last, and then they fall in behind that person. Occasionally, they have a paper and pen, and the people in line fill in their names to keep the order straight. In this case, Bill was second behind a man who had spent the night in his car near the office building. Bill called around 9 a.m. to tell me to bring the kids quickly because he was next in line. We scrambled to get to the office and arrived around 9.40 a.m., expecting to be seen rather quickly. Then we waited, and we waited, and we waited some more. Meanwhile, the kids were getting restless, and a drunk man was in Bill's face yelling that he was ahead of him. Our neighbor, a deacon from our church who had traveled with us, squared his shoulders back and yelled right back at the man, telling him that Bill was next in line. The drunk man persisted testing Bill's patience until a quick look at the list confirmed that Bill indeed was next in line. 
11, 11 o'clock rolled around. They'd been there since 9.40. 11 o'clock rolled by and we watched the clock strike noon. Bill had been in and out of the office filling out forms, all eight of them. They have uh, six kids plus the two of them. All eight of them, which contained the same information, needed to be completed error-free. I hadn't been prepared for such a wait since we were second in line that morning. Our son Isaiah needed to be changed. I hadn't brought diapers or anything else for that matter. The kids were starving and were climbing the walls. As for me, I was just plain mad. This is a missionary now. Always walking around with their hands folded saying, praise the Lord. At one point during this process, I banged on the door. I banged on the door. And I let the employees know that people are waiting out here. At 1.40 p.m., I had finished my part, which took about five minutes. Finally, Bill escorted our ragged bunch home. He immediately returned to the office and was there until after 3 o'clock. Why do I share this story? So that you will know that we are just normal, flawed people? No, you already knew that. I share this so you will understand some of the types of struggles we face in our life overseas. Things that would be quick and simple in North America are unnecessarily difficult and frustrating in Russia and other mission fields. After our registration experience, I had to ask God for forgiveness. I had lost any platform from which to share the gospel due to my anger and impatience. Often situations in which we mingle with Russians provide opportunities for witnessing, but on this day I would have died of embarrassment if I had been asked, why are you here in Russia? Oh, well, I'm here to share with you how Christ can change your life. <laughs> was that lady mistreated? Yes, she was. At least by our standards and maybe by everybody's standards. Mistreatment is going to happen. The question is not, will you be mistreated? But the question is, how will you respond? While traveling last week, I bought something at a convenience store or something. I don't know, I think it was in the airport. And I gave him some money, and I was supposed to get like four $1 bills and some change. And the clerk kind of flustered herself there and went, oh, oh wow, I almost gave you four fives. You know, and I said, I would have noticed and I would have said something. Really? Well, yeah, I really would have. Honesty really is God's policy, especially about things like our source of conflict. I want to challenge you today to get in the habit of stepping back and examining why. You're all worked up. You need to pray and ask God to help you to understand the source of your conflict. Sometimes that's all that's needed to resolve things because we see our error. Sometimes we need more, and we're going to get to that in the weeks to come. Heavenly Father, help us to see where our conflicts come from. Boy, our hearts are wicked and deceitful. You've told us that, and we know it. And so we're always justifying ourselves. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to see where things have come from 
And help us as we continue to study your word to see where things need to go. Do your work in us so that you might do your work through us. We are just like that missionary wife. We have all kinds of challenges. And if we don't live right, if we don't handle our conflicts right, we won't be any more useful to you than she was on that day. We need to be your servants, so help us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.